Hey everybody, welcome back to Divas Diamonds and Dollars podcast where you bring where we bring you the key success principles for business, personal finance and leadership to empower you with the tools and strategies to help you live your best life. We invite you to lean in for possibly the best conversation you have had all week. Now today we're excited to bring you an installment from our signature Voyager interview series as we sit down and take a deep success dive with today's superstars who are doing a big as in bold, inspiring, and gifted things and changing the world we live in. I'm pleased to introduce Adam Carroll, four-time author, documentarian, and TED Talk presenter. Adam is probably most well-known as the creator of the Shred Method after he paid off his mortgage in record time, saving over $180,000 in interest. Adam, so excited to meet you. I'm always looking for the best ideas and intel to support our listeners on their personal financial journey. Um, so I'm sure our listeners can really learn from your experiences. I know I'm looking forward to learning more about your innovative ideas to break the bonds of debt, as I like to say. I love it. Larissa, thank you for having me on your show. This uh, One of the things that I noticed about you, your show, the way you handle interviews, it definitely is a conversation. So I love this idea because I think the majority of folks probably haven't had really deep conversations about money by and large we keep those kind of those those things close to the vest don't we gotta hide that dirty laundry so <laughs> you know adam i feel like your story is so inspiring so i have to let you share it i know that was just i hinted at your introduction so i really would like you to please give us the high level view of your journey kind of tell us what brought you to where you are today yeah um well i appreciate the question and the opportunity to do so I would consider my journey to be one of making my mess my message. Okay, okay. And by that, I mean, I, I graduated from college a debt statistic. I had tens of thousands of dollars in student loans. I had lots of credit card debt. Um, and I met a woman my senior year in college who was very savvy. And she said to me, get rid of your debt or I'm going to get rid of you. Whoops. And I, I went, whoa, wait a minute. She said, no, 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 hear me out. You had all sorts of fun acquiring the debt. Mm. Now it's up to us to get rid of it. That doesn't seem fair, but I'm along for the ride with you. So let's get rid of it. And um, and that changed things for me, candidly. We, we went on this process of blasting away debt and living a life that we had imagined at a fairly young age. And I kept thinking, well, this is easy. Why aren't more people doing this? And so it started this process where I wanted to teach as many people as possible about debt freedom and creating a big life for yourself. And um, that led to TED Talks and documentaries and podcasts like yours and writing books. And today I really consider myself a mediapreneur. So okay. I create content, I sell it, um, but I, I do it just to teach people because I, I love the game of helping people get that aha moment. That is so awesome. And I, I noticed that you made it sound very simple. I have not heard someone <laughs> say that debt getting rid of debt is simple so i cannot wait to hear more yes all right so i am actually a uh realtor i don't know if you knew that and so when i saw your um i don't know intro if you will yeah actually i kind of glommed in on a couple of things that you said and yeah. one of the things is i will say that most new homeowners are just so excited to get the keys when they get their house that yeah. i'm pretty sure no one is paying attention to that amortization schedule Totally. much less the disclosures about the interest rates, because if they did, ew. Um, so what caused you 
for example, to take a closer look and decide to pay off your mortgage sooner rather than later? Man, it's such an astute question. Um, I was in the mortgage business. Oh, okay. And and it was early on in my career, I had been introduced to a company where I was a wholesaler. So I was selling this company's mortgage services to brokers. Okay. And, you know, I, I would look at application after application after application. And one of the things I realized was that half of the applications that I saw, the people, A, couldn't afford the payment that they were getting into and be that, that many of the brokers said, it's fine. We'll just refinance them in a year or two anyway. And essentially what that does is it restarts the clock, as you know. Sure. So mm-hmm. when we refinance, you know, we've been paying for a couple of years on our mortgage. We refi, the, the broker says, don't worry about it. We'll roll all the cost into the mortgage and I'm going to save you $50 or $75 a month. What they don't tell you is, we're going to reset the clock back to 30 years. Okay. You're going to continue paying more interest to the bank, uh, which you had, you had started to eke some of that, you know, edge some of that away. Um, and, and it just occurred to me that, that, that truth and lending disclosure that we gloss over at the closing table. And I remember doing this with clients in the mortgage business. I would say, Oh, this is just the page that the government government makes us show you. Um, and, and essentially we say, this is the page that, uh, the government's guaranteed to make you sad if you look at it. Oh. Well, we we glossed over it because we didn't want people to know that the way an amortization table works is the majority of the interest that you pay on your mortgage is going to be in the first three to five it's years. It's loaded. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, if if I may, there's a there's a metaphor that I was told the other day that just hundred percent resonates with people when I share it. When you look at your mortgage on a thirty year fixed, if you imagine those those 30 years in 10 year chunks, Mm -hmm. the first 10 years is like the red light on a traffic stop. Mm. Cause not much money's going into principal. It's almost all going to interest, right? The next 10 years is a yellow traffic light. Cause a little bit's going into, to, to principal, you know, maybe half and half, um, probably not quite half. And then the last 10 year chunk is a green light, meaning you're paying your mortgage off and you're doing it in, in short order in those last 10 years. Well, we teach people through the shred method, how do you make the first 10 years mm. green years? Okay. So that we're building equity, we're minimizing uh, the interest expense on debt, mm-hmm. and we truly own our asset. Because most people, if you said, do you own your home? They'd say yes, but in reality, right. the bank does. We know, we know. Yeah. We just don't like to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So we we have used this model, this method to teach hundreds of people how to create financial freedom in their lives. And for me, it's um, it's as much about helping people understand how to get to the later years in their life and retire with dignity, mm-hmm. where they they can retire with certainty that there's enough money to live out the rest of their days. And I find that the majority of people I encounter, they get to, or they have friends or family that get to the end of their working life. And there's this question mark about, will I have enough to live the rest of my days? And I don't think anyone should have to live that way. Well, it's definitely one of my pressing questions as um, I'm one of those people like, will I ever be tired? So, yeah. And don't let me, we will not take that detour down to the conversation about what's going to happen to social security, what isn't going to happen to social security, because that'll just depress you right off no but doubt actually i meant to ask you um probably before we came on but 
shred um, in in writing. No, I was going to say, I thought it was in all caps, but it's not. Does shred stand for something in particular or not? It doesn't. It okay. doesn't. Nope. We, we essentially are teaching people how to shred their debt or shred their mortgage. And then the method itself takes the equity in your home or that, that asset that you now own. And we teach people how to leverage that or deploy it in a way that is still safe and secure. It's conservative, but it allows you to create passive income on the back end of this process. Um, we like to call it part of a 10 year freedom plan because most people could theoretically be financially free in 10 years if they follow this methodology. So shred is really about shredding debt and then, you know, creating massive, uh, what, what we like to call massive, passive, permanent streams of income for the rest of forever. Well, this just gets better and better. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I shall continue to probe. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> you know, once upon a time, again, things change and which kind of makes this whole conversation. So um, I guess it has to be fluid because things are changing. They're out yeah. of our control. And I want once, like I said, once upon a time, you know, one of the benefits, if you will, was being able to deduct your home interest. Yes. And of course, uh, mortgage interest. Now, of course, after tax law changes, if you will, yeah. that kind of took that away from the average Joe. So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, we have to account for that in some way. We do. And I get that that um, uh, objection, I suppose you would call it quite a bit, where mm -hmm. someone would say, well, what about my mortgage interest deduction? Mm -hmm. And you're right. In 2017, when the tax law changed, essentially what it said was everyone can get a standard deduction up to $25,900 for a couple, right? So $25,900 is what a standard deduction would be. And that's regardless if you have a mortgage or you don't have a mortgage, you're going to get the 25.9 standard deduction unless you choose to itemize. And if you itemize your deductions, it makes sense to keep a mortgage if that mortgage is charging you more than $26,000 a year in interest. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, one might argue, does it make sense to keep a, a debt instrument that charges you $26,000, $40,000 a year in interest in order to save what, $10,000 on taxes? I don't know if that, that is a fair trade. So what we tell people is if you have a mortgage balance that's less than a certain amount, and I'm going to do rough numbers, but let's say it's $500,000 balance at a 6% interest rate, um, then it would make sense to use shred because you're still going to get a deduction. And the amount of money that you're going to save in the first 12 to 36 months is going to be tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. in savings. Mm. And so, you know, it, it's a, it is a short-term burden, but a very long-term gain in terms of hundreds of thousands of dollars you would normally send to your bank that you're not going to be sending there any longer. Does that make sense? It does make sense. As I said, um, the more I find out about it, I'm just kind of, you know, it, we, we're at this hmm stage, yeah. <laughs> scratching of the old chin. So, yeah. I love it. You mentioned earlier on, uh, you briefly touched on the pre-retirement uh, yes. years, if you will, a preparation. And that's something, like I said, I'm really big on yep. because I feel like it needs, you know, more attention. I feel like there's enough 
people, and again, I hate to generalize, that are really thinking, oh, I'll just retire and take my social security. My neighbor just did that. And I just looked yeah. at her like, and it's not my job to tell her like, well, why? <laughs> but anyway, so I saw a headline recently, for example, though, that said that one of the mistakes people made is being focused on debt reduction instead of, mm. I guess, I didn't know, really um, acquiring assets yeah. to help pay for their retirement. Yeah. So let's just say one is five years plus or minus um, before they plan to retire. What are your thoughts on that? What would you recommend, yeah. for example? Well, so this is this is such a great question because the challenge for most people in retirement is they've gotten accustomed to a lifestyle, mm-hmm. and the lifestyle is based on what's their mortgage payment, you know, when do they go out to eat, what kind of car are they driving, are they traveling a fair amount, you know, do they like to buy clothes and purses and you know things for the home and that. And then you get to retirement age and your income either needs to be at the same level you were accustomed to or greater. Mm-hmm. There's a fallacy that, oh, you only need 80% going into retirement. I know, I know. It's so, it's, it's, it's so untrue. And I've seen it play out in a number of different scenarios where someone, more and more people are retiring, whether they're younger or they're at retire, quote unquote, retirement age of 65 or seven or 70 they're younger, they're able to travel, they're able to, they're still in either go-go or slow-go years, as my parents like to say. Years ago, decades ago, you get to your 70s, you're at a no-go stage, you don't leave yeah. home. Right, right. And today we're younger, we're healthier, we're more vibrant. And so you might get to retirement age at 67, 65, 60, whatever it is, but you might have 30 years to go. And so one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that as we look to retirement and we're thinking pre-retirement, we need to be either figuring out how to ramp up passive income or other income sources, Mm -hmm. or we need to be figuring out how to minimize or reduce what our living expenses are so that we can live comfortably on whatever our retirement income might be. Mm -hmm. And what, what we found with the shred method is that, you know, the biggest expenses most people have on a monthly basis are their mortgage and their car payments. Mm. And there's kind of an age old thought process, I think, or a narrative of, well, I'll always have a mortgage payment or I'll always have car payments. Yeah, I've heard that. And and I think that is a belief structure that if challenged and you figure out how, well, what would it look like if I didn't have a car payment or I didn't have mortgage payments, or if my mortgage payment was half of what it is currently, which we talk about how to do that in our system, um, then I could live comfortably on whatever amount of income I'm I'm looking for. So in a very direct answer to your question, one of the things for pre-retirees is we might say, look at how much do you have in assets that you would live off of in terms of drawing from or, or receiving income from. And we also want to take into account how much debt do you have? Could we blast away a, a chunk of that debt? And if we're talking about mortgage, how do we reduce your mortgage down to a level and then recast the mortgage? So as an example, if if you owed 500,000 in this example, but we can pay it down to maybe 200,000 and then we recast the mortgage for 200,000 at 27 years or 25 years, and your payment is now $1,000 instead of $2,500, it might make life a little easier in retirement. So we have a a case study where a family had a $250,000 mortgage they had a, a $1,600 a month house payment. They paid their mortgage down to 80,000 over the course of three years. 
and then recast their mortgage and it left them with a $400 mortgage payment, not mm -hmm. including taxes and insurance. But $400 a month is basically what they needed to cover in order to live in their 5,000 square foot home that they paid for a while. That's that's a good deal. You can't find apartments at that level. No. So they may never pay off the remaining 80,000, but it's mm -hmm. irrelevant. They have a great place to live. They have a low payment on that place to live. And they've got sufficient cash flow to make sure that they can stay there and, you know, and and uh, have discretionary income long into retirement. So these are some of the strategies that we we teach folks uh, because they're non-traditional to a certain extent, but traditional models have gotten traditional results, which for a lot of people means they're they're getting to retirement age and don't don't know if they have enough. This is. Um... Great intel. Obviously, you know that. Um, and honestly, I actually just recently found out a friend of mine recast his mortgage. Um, he he we used to work together and, uh, you know, we changed jobs or whatever. But he recently he quit because he had about all the fun he could stand. <laughs> so <laughs> but over the years, he was doing part time real estate. And so he had been paying down his mortgage because. I thought he was just taking exotic vacations, but um, he was paying down his mortgage and he is now uh, doing doggy daycare, if you will. And that's ridiculous, but people will pay for their little pooches. But um, he he recast his mortgage and now he's, I think he says he's only paying like $500 a month. So yes. hats off to him and hats off to you guys. Cause I'm like, okay, Larissa's next. So anyway, that is awesome. And again, so I, I just want to, dig probably a little deeper because I yeah. noticed that um, you recommend as part of your strategies that people minimize expenses in order to um, maximize the shred method, right? Yes. So, Correct. and I did take your, like I said, your video masterclass, um, you indicate one should have disposable income in order to make this really work. Yeah. So what's a good range, if that makes sense for the disposable income? Because what are we looking at doing with that money, so to speak. Yes. I, I like to use this metaphor, Larissa, when I talk about how much discretionary income is needed, mm -hmm. because if you go to Office Max, there's three different kinds of shredders. There's the desktop kind that you can okay. put one sheet of paper in. Okay. There's the, uh, you know, a little bit nicer home model that you can maybe put 20 or 30 sheets in at a time. And then there's the industrial model that you could put a book through and it'll shred oh, it. Easily. Wow depending on how much discretionary income you have will determine the size of the shred tool that you're using in our method. Okay. So if somebody has $200 or $500 a month in discretionary income, they'll see real results. You'll be able to pay off debt, you know, far faster than you'd imagine. If somebody has 2000 or 5,000, we're talking about a shredder, the size you could put a car in mm -hmm. and we're going to create financial freedom in no time. And so where where most families I think get get hung up a little bit is if you've got let's take two thousand dollars a month in discretionary income, and I say discretionary, what I mean by that is this is the money left over after paying all of your bills, right? Not including maybe the 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 totally free money that you'd have to go blow on dinners out and go into the mall and things like that. And and there's a reason that I say that. I have a, a theory that idle money is dangerous money. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean by that? 
I, I, sadly, I do. <laughs> yes, I, I'm. I have been prone before using this method. I was prone to go into Costco mm. or Best Buy or wherever the the the, the uh, store of choice was, and I would go, well, it's only four hundred dollars, yeah. and I have four hundred dollars sitting there, so I'm going to get this thing, and okay. I'd get it home, and I'd go, I'm not sure why I have that. Why, why did I put another TV in the house? Or why did I, I didn't need the kayak that I just bought at Costco. And so, and the reason I bought it was I had idle funds sitting there. Right. And so I think the majority of people out there struggle with overspending because they have lazy idle money sitting around, mm -hmm. not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And naturally we go, well, I have some, so I'm going to, I'm just going to go put it, you know, I'm going to go put it somewhere. Sure. And what, um, what we like to do with that that $2,000 is say, our goal is to put it to work and make it as efficient as humanly possible. And that might be putting it towards debt. It might be blasting away some of the things like credit cards or car loans. But our goal, if we're blasting away credit cards or car loans, is to free up even more discretionary income every month that allows you to, to, to have a bigger shred tool sitting on your desk. And this is what I mean when I say our goal is to minimize expenses. The expenses we're minimizing are fixed monthly expenses like your car loan, yeah. your your student loans, your credit cards potentially. And, and in freeing up that extra money, the shred tool just automatically takes whatever extra discretionary income you have and sends it to the most efficient place it can, all based on a, on a complex algorithm in the software. So one of the things that um, I advocate and what I have kind of built my platform around, if you will, is uh, multipreneurship. Mm. And by that, I mean income diversification. I just think Love it's it. critical, especially today. And um, especially, as I said, my my target audience, if you will, is is late bloomers or, you know, midlife women, just because that's just how life works out. Yes. So in order... And again, so not just to, you know, be working 24 seven, cause I'm not looking at, you know, trading hours for dollars necessary or, yeah. yeah. Um, but also so they can have money for investment. Yes. So I know that you teach others how to make their money more efficient. And maybe you just said this, but um, can you give us a few get started now recommendations? Mm, um, yes. And I, I, I love this. I want you to, to um, restate that multi, multipreneurship. Multipreneur. Yeah, multipreneur. I've never heard that term. I love it. Okay. I will definitely give you credit every time I use it from here on out. Um, this, so where do people begin? Years ago, I, was, I would ask myself this question, Larissa, and... It, it came out of a book, The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. You're probably familiar. Yes. Uh -huh. Excellent and book. Many tabs. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent book. It was mind blowing for me. Just I opened my mind to all sorts of possibilities. And um, one of the things that came up for me was asking the question, how could I make as much money in an hour as most people make in a month? Mm. Because what, what multipreneurship really is about is not trading time for money, but figuring out also how to make your time the most valuable it can be. Mm -hmm. And so for your listeners, each of them probably has some unique skill set, or uh, some people might call it their unique ability or their, their zone of genius. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And either you're completely leveraging that or you're not, or, mm-hmm. or maybe you're dipping your toe in it every now and again. For me, public speaking was, was what I knew I could be doing to make that kind of money. And so I started down that path of, of figuring out if this is my zone of genius, how do I go make money doing that? And then as I'm doing it, I started inquiring, what else could I be doing in order to create other streams of income out of this same thing that I'm doing, you know, week after week, month after month. And the benefit of, of finding something that you love to do and you get paid well to do it is it frees up all sorts of time where you can think about Hmm, what else could I do? Right. And probably a blessing and a curse. If you ask my wife, um, cause she'd say, do you really need to be starting something else? I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. But what I would say is that, um, in my particular scenario, what I found was that I would go speak, I would record my presentation. I would turn it into content. Mm-hmm. I would put that on YouTube. I would get views on YouTube we turned the the content that was on YouTube and the comments into social media posts. Wow. So we now get traffic from that. And that led to people inquiring about how do I become a speaker? How do I become debt-free? You know, how do I do all these things? So naturally there was a course or a product in there that I created, which led to more people coming and buying those things. So I think that if you if your listeners are figuring out what is their zone of genius, what's their unique ability, there will be lots of multipreneurship opportunities that come out of that. If you have time to sit and think about, I did this one thing, what else are natural outshoots of this? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm, I'm just, uh, well, enjoying your, your, uh, cause it's kind of like creating a visual and, uh, how you, you know, going from a to B to C to D and just on down, because yes. that's kind of how, my mind works when I, I won't say give it rest. There is no rest. Um, so semi-related, the other part, like I said, when I'm talking to um, buyers, if you will, about buying property, mm-hmm. I know that still haven't managed to take it away yet. You know, having home equity is an opportunity, if you will. Yes. And so when your strategy of using HELOCs, um, Dear listener, home equity line of credit um, as a cash flow technique. That also yeah. sounds interesting. So interesting and, and, you know, wrapped in cotton balls because we also are familiar with the phrase, don't use your home as a piggy bank. Yes. So yes. as a sole income earner, for example, how does one take advantage of the strategy without getting in over, one's over their head? head? Yeah, this is this is an essential question. And very candidly, when we work with clients, our goal is to stretch them, but not stress them. Mm. And what I mean by that is when we're using the shred method and we're using a home equity line of credit, a HELOC as a cash flow tool, all of our income goes into the HELOC. And the amount of that HELOC has to be somewhere between one and a half and two times what your take-home pay is in a month. So if you're taking home five grand, 7,500 would be a reasonable amount on a home equity line of credit to have available to you. And the reason for that is that bucket, if you will, that HELOC bucket has to be big enough to receive your paycheck, right? 
So as you deposit your paycheck in, there's got to be enough room in that line of credit that you can put in the, the money into that HELOC. Our software is tracking your income and your expenses. It's looking at how much is your debt and the debt payoff, including interest rates and monthly payments. And it's basically saying, based on what you have coming in and what you have going out, we can leverage this certain amount for three or four days against your, your debt to make that money as, as efficient as humanly possible. And so the HELOC balance goes up and down, Larissa, on a, on a monthly basis based on when your income comes in and when your bills go out. But it almost always stays at a, at a somewhat steady level in terms of the average daily balance, which is not going to be crazy high for most people. I mean, in this example, $5,000 take home, you might have a HELOC that's sort of bouncing in the $1,500 to $2,000 range. Oh, really? And, and the goal of that is that uh, we need to be mindful of, are there going to be major expenses? And we talk to our clients about, do you have some, do you have an emergency fund set aside that is your available money? And then what is your accessible money? So available money for, for decades now has been, well, you need to have um, six to eight months of living expenses or six to 12 months, depending on who's, you know, who you're listening to. And that, that is what we would consider available money. It's sitting there in a bank. It might be in your home safe. You see it, you can touch it, you can go get it in a moment's notice. And then there is accessible money. And accessible money might be lines of credit. It might be, candidly, it could be credit cards. It could be uh, additional money on your home equity line. And accessible money is not your immediate emergency fund, but it's there if things went tragically wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that for the majority of people, this is a very broad brush statement, but for the majority of people, they don't have an income problem. They have a liquidity problem. And what I mean by that is it's not that they don't make enough money. Most people do. In fact, in fact, lenders underwrite loans based on what your income is and what your, your fixed expenses are. So the banks already are saying, oh, you can't afford any more than X. Right. What people have is they have a liquidity problem because they, they don't have access to five or 10 or 50 grand at a time. And as, as a realtor, you know that the people who have liquidity are the ones that are scooping up deals when deals are to be had. And so we want to teach people, how do we create liquidity um, that allows them to participate that way? And, and the shred tool does that in a matter of months. I mean, it might be 12 to 18 months, but someone's going to notice, holy cow, I have a ton of liquidity now available to me that opens up the door for me to do a whole lot of other things. Very exciting. So, and I guess this is a related question because again, I have heard, if you will, and I'm sure it's the common thought besides home improvements that, you know, HELOCs are used for debt reduction, you know, bill consolidation or, or whatever. Yep. Um, so what about purchasing additional real estate or other income generating assets? So I guess essentially, what are your thoughts on using the HELOC to, to, uh, as a way to increase one's wealth? Is that, yes. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, I am a, I am a fan. I'm a proponent of doing this. It, so there are some people in our network and we've, we've since counseled them, but some people that would go really fast, they would, they would leverage everything they could to go buy more real estate. Mm -hmm. 
And what they then found themselves in was a situation where they were a bit over leveraged and out over their skis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a month goes by or two months goes by and they don't receive rent and they're scrambling. Oh, mm-hmm. And so what we tell people is you can do this. You can use the HELOC to create additional forms of, of income, but let's make sure that either the, the available or accessible money is sufficient in case things go south. Sure. Um, and you probably know this, but you know, if, if we don't have money sitting on the sidelines, we're literally inviting Murphy into our home. You know, Murphy's law, right? When things go wrong, they can. Hey, I got a, a welcome mat out front, as a matter of fact, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, we we work with people to determine how much is needed on the side or how much should you have from a liquidity perspective. And if you have a fair amount of equity in your home and you want to get into the real estate game and do that, then let us either point you towards resources or help you understand how much would you put down? What are you looking for, et cetera? Um, people who are with us for a while, you know, a, a year, two years, three years or more, um, they're almost all all in real estate. They're doing additional deals. And a, and a great example is we have a family that within three and a half years shredded their three or $400,000 mortgage. At that time, they had no mortgage payment. They had, a, they had about a $200,000 line of credit and they dropped a hundred grand down on a condo in Florida on the beach. And they then put that into an Airbnb or VRBO network. And it has paid 90% of their mortgage for the past year and a half. So they're treating that as their investment and a vacation home, candidly. Mm-hmm. But the feedback I got from them was we never would have ever imagined we could have done this had it not been for Shred. Because now they have, you know, very, very low if and possibly even non-existent mortgage payments every month. Mm-hmm. They have income from the property and they've got their existing work income. And so they're building wealth far faster than they would have if they were just dollar cost averaging into investments and going, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had a condo someday? You know, it just allows them to take that step that much faster. So typically, and this isn't on my list of pressing questions, but um uh, so, you know, let's just say someone, some people, when they sign up, do they typically stay in the long run? They pay down their mortgage, which I'm assuming that's quote unquote the main purpose, but so they pay it down, do they, you know, stay with you for, I don't know, additional education, learning? What is that? Yeah. There we go. <laughs> this is a great question. We, we do, uh, we do have a number of people that stay with us long-term and they're staying with us five, 10 years in some cases. Um, oops, my apologies. And the, the reason why they do that is we're showing them, okay, you've done step one in what we call a 10 year freedom plan. Mm-hmm. Now let's go to step two. And step two is we start to leverage that equity into other vehicles in order to create step three, which is massive, passive, permanent streams of income. And the goal after five or six years for most people is that we have created income streams that supersede at the very minimum what your living expenses are. Mm-hmm. So you're living for free and live free is kind of the second piece of this. And then financial freedom is when you you have more than enough money coming in every month to cover all of your expenses. And, um, and at that point, you're working because you love to work or enjoy what you do. And, or you've decided I'm going to step away from this and you know, just pursue what I'm interested in. 
And it, it depends on how fast people do this. I don't want to make it sound like everyone's within 10 years, mm -hmm. but certainly within two to five, people are noticing a marked change in how they're living their life and the, the amount of freedom that they, they feel. Now, uh, we are kind of getting close, but I did want to just touch on uh, your, um, well, not your, the infinite banking, banking as a strategy, which, yeah. you know, I've read it more than once that this is often used by wealthy families, um, you know, and that's quote unquote, how they create generational wealth. Yeah. At the same time, knowing that the underlying vehicle is uh, a whole lot of universal life, I think. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, from the little bit that I know, let's agree not to be dangerous. Um, this kind of seems inaccessible to most of us, especially after you get to be of a certain age. So what age range and or income level should one, would one be looking at this option, for example? Because I, I yeah. just can't imagine that this is the first step you want to take. So what should be in play? You know, okay, it's a three-part question. Yes. <laughs> what age and income? And then at what when do you incorporate this strategy? For yeah, example? these are all very astute questions too. You've obviously done your research and homework on this, Larissa. Um, it's a tempter, but I'm just like, I'm a little bit long in the tooth for that, please. <laughs> yeah, it, this, this is the, all three are great questions and I'll try and knock them out one by one. Age and income. Age obviously is an issue because the older you are, the more expensive insurance becomes, right? So most people that, that I've worked with are looking at infinite banking and funding an infinite banking policy somewhere between 35 and could be 50. Um, if you're over 50, what you're probably doing is you're funding a policy for a child or a grandchild. Yeah, and the reason for that is you still own the policy, but they are the insured. So it's not about a, benef a death benefit going out when you pass away. It may, may be more like a living benefit for somebody that is is going to be around for a long time. You know, buying it for my my twenty year old daughter as an example might be something that I do. Um, income wise, the the key, and this is a this is an interesting question because I would say probably someone in the six figure income range would qualify to 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 do one of these. However, we have clients that might make fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. But because they've shredded their mortgage and they have plenty of discretionary income, they may be funding a policy at $20,000 a year in premium. And the reason they're doing that is number one, they can write a $20,000 check out of, if you're tracking, the HELOC. And their income just cycles through the HELOC. So the HELOC gets paid down rapidly. But within four or five years, they have $100,000 sitting in that policy that they can then go invest in real estate or or other ventures. So, you know, I would say that six-figure mark is kind of the a watermark, but it may be midline because someone might be making 50 or 60 grand a year and be able to participate. The key is how it's bought and how it's funded from my perspective. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of salespeople out there who will try and sell a policy and get you into a $2,000 a month premium or 1500 or 1200 or 600 or whatever it is the the issue i have with that is then it just feels like another nut to crack mm -hmm. right it's like well now my bills just got higher cuz i got to have an extra 600 dollars and again through the shred method not that this is uh, the magic bean or anything but but my my wife is a very conservative minded person she was 
raised in a household that had less than nothing. And so there was a lot of money insecurity for her. But when we started using Shred, she said all of that went away because it never felt like there was lack. And the whole idea of lack comes from when you're looking at your checking account and it's dipping close to zero or it's negative. And when you start using your HELOC, that thing fluctuates always, but all of the money that's going through there, if you're using the system properly, is all going to build wealth. So it doesn't feel like you're behind the eight ball. It feels like you're constantly improving your financial lot in life. So going back to the question about age and, and income, we I can show people, depending on their age and their income, what would make sense for them on an infinite banking policy. Uh, what were the other two parts of the question now we've it was just whether or not one doesn't jump off the boat and do this immediately there would be other strategies in place before this i would yes. imagine yes that would make yes. the most sense and and one of those candidly might be that you're using shred or you're blasting away some of the debt that you have in order to free up some of the capital to go into one of these and going back to earlier on in the interview when i said you have red light yellow light green light the problem with red light, the red light 10-year period of your mortgage is you are sending twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year to your banker. That is money that you cannot keep for yourself. Right. And so if someone is early on in a mortgage in the first zero to five years, one of the things that we would recommend is use shred first mm. in the first 24 months, let's say, free up a bunch of equity. And then we would look at maybe transitioning some of that equity a little bit at a time into an infinite banking policy that allows you to begin growing that, that bucket of money. And that bucket of money has a variety of implications. Um, you can borrow from it at any time. It, uh, it could go on to pay for college costs. You could, you could buy a car with it and then repay yourself back for that car loan. Um, you know, it, it is money in retirement that if the market tanks you're not you're choosing not to pull money out of your retirement funds and instead pulling it from there for a time being so it's a it's a hedge against market fluctuations um typically they have a long-term care writer so if you need to have long-term care later in life you can borrow from the death benefit of that policy to cover your long-term care so yeah. the, the variety of uses for it are many and I think most people don't really understand how powerful a tool is and to use it effectively. Um, we try and teach people how to do that because it's definitely not one size fits all. I wouldn't have someone walking off the street and go, hey, let me show you this policy. It's amazing. I would say, let's talk about strategy and what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you do it. Does it make sense? If so, here's how I'd structure it. And there's a lot of education in the process. Well, I mean, I, I really feel like a lot of, again, with the generalizations, but um, a lot of financial decisions are more uh, reactionary than, uh, you know, people hear, you know, hear, hear a buzzword or something. Oh, that sounds great. Let me go try. And that's not yeah. really the best way to go about that. Okay, uh, Adam, I just want to ask you one last question, mostly. Um, so I imagined that you've been following the news if you will, about the student loan repayments and mm -hmm. you know the president's efforts to forgive some of the outstanding balances. Um, so, what are your what's your viewpoint viewpoint on this area? I I did a documentary on student loan debt in 2017, 
and it aired on CNBC. So I, I've done a ton of research on this and I've talked to a lot of experts. And my general consensus is that I don't think that blanket student loan forgiveness will happen unless it is a bargaining chip politically. So I think in the next election, it will become a core issue and whoever is promising the world will likely get the votes. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes the onus then is on Congress. So if, if Biden as an example wins because he's promised he's going to blanket, you know, forgive all student loans or a, a vast majority of them, then it's going to have to also be passed and they're going to have to have full control, democratic control of the house and the Senate for, in, in my opinion. I think what will likely happen is they'll throw some bones out there and we'll see some forgiveness. We've already seen some, you know, $10,000 waved off here or there. And don't get me wrong, $10,000 is a big deal, but it's a drop in the bucket for someone who has 60, 70, 80, 100, $300,000 in student loans. I've seen some terrible numbers. I don't even know how that happens, but yes. Uh -huh. It's astonishing. We saw one the other day, $650,000 in student loans between a couple and they were chiropractors, so they made good money relatively, but they didn't own a home. They had a, they had a, you know, they rented their home and we were trying to help them. But we said, you got to have something that we can, you know, we, we need some equity that we can drive right, right. You know, revenue through. So I think in answer to your question or one answer to your question is it will be very hard to pass this and get it through when student loan interest is the second largest income source for the United States government. Is that right? It is. So we have income tax that comes in. That's the number one, you know, generally the number one uh, income so source for the government. And then we have interest on student loans. And, you know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you might suggest that it's actually in the government's best interest to drive people to college and get them to borrow as much as humanly possible to make sure that we have as much revenue coming in on those student loans as humanly possible. And I, I've been a longtime proponent of the message that you have to understand the ROI of a college investment. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to school and you're going to borrow 50 grand a year to do so, you got to know what you're going to make coming out of that program or push pause, go figure out what you want to do, go back and study that thing and then go do it because now, you know, you can, you can make money, but college right now is a very expensive place to find oneself. And, um, and I think a lot of people have done that at a very high price tag. And unfortunately they're going to be making payments for a long time. These are uncertain times, Adam, and this conversation has just been a lot of fun. Clearly I could keep talking for a really long time, but you know what? I'm going to let you go. <laughs> so before we close though, first of all, what's next for you and how can people reach out and find out more? What's next for me is we are helping, our goal is to help 10,000 people become financially free, meaning they're going to have a house paid off. They're going to have uh, enough passive income that they can live comfortably. And we are in the hundreds right now. We're going to 10,000. Um, that's what I'm most excited about because we are, we are freedom fighters. We're leading a freedom revolution. This is what we're after. The, the way people can get in touch with me as you know, we have a masterclass at theshredmethod.com that teaches people a little bit about the method. And then we encourage folks that are intrigued to book 20 minutes with us. And we'll run through your numbers, do a savings analysis, show you what's possible. 
and hopefully paint a picture that that gets you excited about the future um, and creates certainty, you know, over uncertainty. Um, so that would be the best way. Come check us out at theshredmethod.com. Most awesome. Adam, thank you so much for your time. I have so enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to following the journey. Likewise, Larissa, thank you for the time. Um, keep doing what you do. This is critical information you're sharing. And um, it's just been an honor to be with you. Thank you. I appreciate it.